Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. From Audio Boom comes Covert, a new podcast that delves into the murky world of spies, soldiers, and top-secret military operations. I'm Jamie Rennell, and together we'll discover the real stories of history's greatest classified missions, told by the operatives, soldiers, and journalists who experienced it firsthand. Follow Covert on Spotify or subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. Johnny Carson once interviewed Betty Davis and asked if she had any advice for young starlets wanting to get ahead in Hollywood. She suggested take Fountain. Fountain Avenue runs parallel to Santa Monica and Sunset Boulevards in Hollywood and is often used to avoid the heavier traffic. And isn't that what we're all after? A smooth run, no holdups, not only in traffic, but also in life. How do people handle those holdups, the rejections? How do they create a life in the entertainment capital of the world? How do they identify and express their uniqueness in a place where hundreds of thousands are hoping to do the same? Welcome to Take Fountain. Compelling stories from passionate people who've made it, are making it, in Hollywood. Writers, comedians, actors, filmmakers. I'll talk to anyone with a story to tell. Welcome to Take Fountain, a podcast of passionate people working on their dreams. Compelling stories from Hollywood. Your host, Ella James. So my guest today on Take Fountain is Paige Simpson. Do I do an introduction? No. Let's just see how this unfolds. I met you, I thought you were compelling, I thought you were interesting, we met socially, and I wanted you to be one of the first people that I interviewed, so thanks for your time today. Yes, When I tried to do some basic research online about you, there's very little that comes up. But one of the things that did come up that I had no idea about was that you were the executive producer of Leaving Las Vegas. Yes. And that was the 1996 movie that secured Nicolas Cage an Academy Award for Best Actor. It secured awards for Elizabeth Shue. Um, It secured, I think it was 43 nominations and awards globally. Tell me about that experience. Well, I'll tell you, we never dreamed that it would be uh, that much of a success. It It was a book based on a book that came to me from a curator, a museum curator, wasn't in the business at all, said, I think you should look at this book and I read it and I was partnered with Mike Figgis at the time, the director, and I, I gave it to him. And it was a book that was out of print. You couldn't buy it in bookstores. It was a, the publisher had gone AWOL and it was, it was just this little gem someone had found. And M- Mike loved it. We developed it and we decided that we would try to make a film about a prostitute and a alcoholic. And it wasn't easy getting financing. We were turned down by 38, 40 places um, before we finally got a, a French financier. And and we made it for under $3 million and did it the way Mike wanted to do it. He got the music he wanted to do. He composed the music. He got Sting to do. Everybody kind of did it as a favor. And we thought we'd have a little independent film that maybe went to Sundance. So when it exploded... Um, yeah, we were over the moon. I mean, it was just, it was wonderful. It was a great experience. Do you see, do you see that a lot in your life where <clears throat> things are, things are just meant to happen? They just happen because you think this is, this is going to happen. And then other things that you think are dead certs don't happen. I was thinking about that the other day because I thought there are, you know, there are projects that I have that are at studios now 15 years. I mean, either a director is died or an actress has gone into a loony, you know, it just, and it keeps staying and staying. And I'd love to say, just stick in there in 20 years, you'll get it made. I I, I tend to think you got to go, you got to go with, if you just have a someone gives you a little money, just go off and do it. If you wait, you just, 
the buzz dies, your energy dies. It just, you know, and, and with leaving Las Vegas, really, we, I think from the time I found the book to when we made the film, it was less than two years, which oh, wow. in this town's pretty good. That is pretty so good. So we were just pushing, pushing, pushing to do it. It's understanding that, that balance that exists between, somebody once described it to me as when you're paddling down a creek in a canoe, you've got to know when to bring your paddle up and rest it. Mm. And then mm. when you start paddling again. So there are times when you catch the current and times when you're just going for it. Does that resonate right. for you? Um, it resonates in that I have no uh, upper body strength. So. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd probably be tipping over by now. No, I'm, I'm not a good uh, paddler. Um, yeah, I, I'd have to say that's, you, you really have to n negotiate, negotiate those waves in those waters. So I think the, uh, the, lo the longer you're in town and the more people you know, it, it just makes it easier. I think it makes it easier to navigate those waters, yeah. When you were growing up, and where were you growing up? Where did you grow up? I grew up outside of Chicago. Okay. Yeah. So were you a little girl saying, when I grow up, I want to be a producer? No, and I, I'm... I'm embarrassed to say I wasn't even a, a big moviegoer. I mean, yes, The Sound of Music or Oliver or all those, a lot of those musicals are what I grew up in, and with and loved. But I, um, I didn't dream of being a producer. I, I graduated uh, from graduate school in, in, uh, with an arts management degree. I thought I was going to go to New York and work, work with Joe Papp, who's now deceased, but the big, you know, theater theater impresario, and, um, and I got sidetracked by these women. That's why I kind of was um, immediately responded to, to you, these two women who were trying to build a film studio in Chicago, very strong women, working with the mayor at that time, also a woman. And I gave up moving to New York and going into theater to try to make this dream happen in Chicago. And I was, did it for three years. and. It was a great experience, and had we succeeded in bringing about that film studio, I probably would have stayed in Chicago and promoted it and worked, you know, worked there in the industry, but out, outside of Chicago. Do you see yourself as more <clears throat> of a leader or more of that key support person that's needed to make things happen? I don't, I've never thought of myself as the key support person to make things happen. I think I am a leader and I think I'm good at putting things together. Someone has to take it from there. I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I think I have a good sense of style in, in that I, I, I kind of know a temper of a, of a director and an and actor that would be good, maybe an actor who hasn't done comedy but wants to do comedy. I'm kind of good at seeing that big picture and bringing those people together and then someone has to take over from there whether it's the five million ten million that has to be raised I'm not very good at raising money so I'm more of a creative I'd say a creative producer yeah <laughs> so tell me for people who are listening who aren't involved in the industry at all what is a producer what do you do mm. that's always such a difficult question because it's changed over the years when I was starting out it was more clearly to find that there was a creative producer and that was really the person that found the material and put the director and, and the pieces together and then there was an executive producer who was more the financing, the overseeing of the day-to-day, -day, really running the show basically. And now those, are, those lines have become blurred because um, so many of the people who put up the money want credit for being the creative person. So. Um, and and uh, so they, the roles have kind of, I'd have to say they've merged. And a lot of young produce, producers coming up can't even afford to be just a creative producer. They have to know how to get that money. You have to, whether it's, you know, uh, Indiegogo or uh, any of these startups or uh, wealthy friends from college. I mean, it's, you really have to seek out all those avenues. I mean, in my day, I'd find a book and I'd go into Universal Studios and I'd meet with an executive and I'd say, buy this book, it's great, this could be the movie. 
and they'd go, great, let's get a writer, let's go. Now I can't go in there unless I have the money, I have the cast together, I have a budget done, I have a location scout done. It's, I'm, I'm having to work for my supper more wow. than in the early days. Yeah, it's just too competitive. It's, right? um, yeah, and there are less films being developed the way I used to do it. To, you know, we used to make them a lot more independent films. I mean, your listeners know this. I mean, it, the studios just make these big blockbuster sequels. Yeah. They're developing very few things from scratch. Right. So, have have avenues like Netflix um, and Amazon. Have, has that expanded things over the last few years, do you think, at all? Oh, gosh, yes. I, I'd like to tap into that. And if you know anyone there, please okay. <laughs> I'm introduce me. I will work that one out. I'm, 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 I'm going to put some effort into that. I think, you see, I'm interested in talking to you about this notion. Nowadays, we are supposed to be all things to all people. So the days of just being really good at one thing are over. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, do you feel that that dissipates people's output? Ah, that's, that's such a good, that's such a good question. Um, no, because I think the people are learning to multitask in such a way that they, or at least younger people can. I mean, I, I don't know anyone of, uh, of my friends who are just producing now. I mean, they're producing, producing, but they're also running workshops or curating art shows or something. There's just, I was thinking about that this morning before you came, that there's just so much crossover. And that's what's so great about you because you've got your feet and your hands into so many pots. And I, I think that's, that's where it's at today. I, I think the person who's just, I'm only gonna produce and only, produce feature films and that's it, I, they're going to be, you know, it's a dinosaur. It's, it's really dying. I think you have to be on your feet and ready to adapt. And, um, yeah, so am I, uh, do I have less output? I'd say yes, but, <laughs> but, um, but I've got to, I've got to go with the flow. I've got to learn from I think the tyranny of being, let's say, over 45. Mm -hmm. The tyranny of being over 45 is that it creates a conundrum in that we are led to believe that as we age, we get better at dealing with stuff. Mm -hmm. And to a degree, that's true. But then it's almost as if the stuff gets harder and harder and harder. And we realise that essentially we are no we are somewhat better at dealing with it, but that our fear has cut across all of it and, 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 and it holds it back, holds mm. us back. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, when I think I use this, I use this often because I, I talk to corporate audiences about resilience and, uh, and I use this example of a young child who's climbing a tree. So remember when you were a little girl and you were climbing a tree, and if your mommy or daddy were there, they would have said, Paige, don't do that, don't, it's dangerous. And you would have said, no, because what you saw was up there and that's where you wanted to be. Right, okay? right. For all kinds of reasons. You might have seen somebody else do it. You might have thought that that just looked like a particularly appealing fork in the tree and that it was achievable. And so you go halfway up and you fall down. But you don't wake up the next day and think, I'm never climbing a tree again. Mm, mm. Because you've already forgotten about it and you've moved on to the next adventure. I yeah. worry that as we get over 45, that we are so damaged by those trees that we fall out of, that it right. stops us from the next adventure. Right. Because we know all the stuff that goes wrong. Right, right. Um, how tough a skin do you have? I don't consider that I have very tough skin. And I think the tougher skin you have in my industry, the better you do. I take things so personally and, um, and wasn't always this sensitive. I found I've gotten more sensitive um, as I've gotten older. Well, I, I, I don't know if that fits in. I mean, does when I was younger, exactly it'd be like, is. well, if that guy doesn't want to do business with me, fine. You know, I, I was, a, um, there was more confidence. I think there was, I had more confidence and I didn't care, but I think as you grow older, or as I've grown older, I see how important 
my personal life is or my family is and my friends are. And for a while there, it was just about making movies. It was all in making movies. That was my family. And when you wake up one day and you go, that's not a real family. That's just a fake family for about three or four months. And then you're by yourself again. And that's been the hardest lesson for me to learn. I mean, if we want to get into per to personal thing, that's yeah. that's um, that was really hard. I would find that I would get on a movie, and it's getting on a movie is like going to camp. It's like going to summer camp, and you're sleeping with the same people, and you're eating with the same people. I don't mean sleeping with the same people in the bed, but you're all bunking down, and you're all doing all this together, and it's fun, fun, fun. And then you have to go home from camp, and what I would do is just take a deep fall into a depression because it would just be the after party. And then you are jonesing to get the next movie going so you can have that family high again. Like and nice. then for a while there, I was going, going, going. So when people said, well, didn't you think about having children or getting married? No, I just wanted to get that next buzz of doing a, a film. And it wasn't to see my name in lights. It really was because that's a dream family. And I almost cry talking about it now because it would really, I, it would really hurt me when, when it was over. Oh, that I mean, really, really resonates said, for me. I uh, cried on national television in Australia. We had a show called FCTV, Family Circle TV. And it was a daytime show. And uh, I was a presenter on it. And uh, we had this round table where we'd all sit and talk and, and it was the last day. And I was sobbing. I was inconsolably mm -hmm. sobbing. And, and other more experienced people, because this is nearly 20 years ago, God, how time flies. You know, but they were like, don't worry, Ella, something else will come up, something else will come up. But for me, this was my family du jour. This was my family of the time. So I totally understand yeah. that. When you finish a play, when you finish a movie, um, when you when you wrap anything, they have been your, your family, particularly because, you know, it's not like, I use this, this example all the time, it's not like working for Bank of America, where you get in your car and you travel the freeway and you take your handbag and your packed lunch into work and you right. work there for a period of time and you have your lunch in the middle of the day and then you come home where you can uh, go to a regular theatre booking or a music booking, you've got a subscription or you're a quilter or a, a, a book club. We can't be members of clubs because we can't tie ourselves down. Right. Because we right. don't know where we're going to be on Tuesday night or Wednesday night or, or how many times have we cancelled things because something's come up because we're making a movie. Right. We're making right. something and we right. has the priority. Right. So what, so do you remember what experience it was for you that turned that around? Um... Yes, I had a breakdown. <laughs> I had a breakdown uh, in New York. Um, I mean, that, that is the honest answer of what turned, turned it around because I think it just, uh, I was so lonely having not done a film in a while. And the reality of having walked away from an engagement to marry, things that I'd given up for this movie business, and then the movie business not turning its back on me, but, but not being there for me. And I, um, yeah, I had a, had a serious clinical breakdown. And since that time, I don't look back and say, oh, I should have gotten married, or I should have had children, or I should, no, I, I, I don't regret anything that I did, but I just looked at the film business differently, and that it, and that it isn't everything. You know, it's my mother and my sisters, my now husband. They're they're all going to be there for me, but I can't count on the film biz. You know, so um, that that that's when it changed. Do I th still think I'm? a good producer and I have produced since then. I did a film in, in um, Belgium and hopefully I'm doing another one. But it's, um, it's made me less addicted to it, mm -hmm. I guess. Well, it's, it's, it's almost like 
you said summer camp. I liken it to being on a cruise, where as you come down the gangplank, you're all saying, give me your number, what's your address? I'll keep in touch. <laughs> and then I never see any of those people I know. again. You know, I know. That's, that is the, you know, for people who aren't in the industry, that's what it's like, isn't it? And the, for some reason, these people become so important to you over a, over a short period of time. And there's really a handful that you keep in touch with. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm just a Midwestern girl. I thought when you met someone that said, we're going to be pals for life, that that's, that's what would happen. And it's not that they're lying. It's just people's lives go on. And that's, that's, that took some getting used to, you know? Um, so I, for me, it's, it, it's, it's turned out not to necessarily be about the people. Ella, that I've met in this business, but the the material, the the talent, the 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 writers, the directors, the actors. Who, boy, I think I go through a hard time as a producer. That's a that's a tough job. That's a tough job. You've got to have ultra ultra la mer cream thick <laughs> skin for that for that job. I um so. Yeah, you know my what's nice coming them. to it later in life, though? <clears throat> because, as you know, I wasn't an actor until... Oh, maybe you didn't know. Mm. I wasn't an actor until 2007. And, uh, and I had been a journalist, a voiceover artist, uh, a, a corporate speaker speaking on resilience, radio and talk, uh, radio talkback presenter, television presenter. And it was only when my mother went into a nursing home in 2007 mm. that I did my first play. And she had, she had discouraged me from anything theatrical or no, oh. no. She canceled my ballet classes. She canceled my piano lessons that my aunt was paying for. And we had later, we had this discussion. So there are no regrets about it, but she said, you know, I should never have discouraged you from that because it's so in your soul. And so I came to it late in life. And at first I had all kinds of feelings about that, like, oh, why wasn't I doing this? Because I felt it in my bones. The first time I stood on set was like, oh, wow. Oh, wow. And having spent a lifetime creating my words for my work, then suddenly the, the joy of using somebody else's words, right? And to, to not be connected to a role so much that if for an audition, for example, I go through the script and I see the character in a certain way, and then I'll go to an audition and I'll turn that on its head. And I never think, oh no, I really got that wrong, or I'm so <laughs> bad. I just think, oh, goody, goody, goody. You know, I get a chance to do it completely differently. Different. So that's the Great. joy of coming to something. Wow. You know, but you said you didn't be so you, as long as your mother was right there, you, you were reluctant to do that. But when she was ge little geographically removed, well, is, is that the delicate whatever. way of saying that? After she died, you know, my, oh, this is turning into an interview about Ella James, but that's okay too, because mm -hmm. I think there's something here. So, so my mother turned to me when she was dying and she said, as soon as you were born, I knew I'd never be alone. Mm. Mm. And, mm. and that, I know, right, <laughs> raising eyes to the ceiling. There are two ways of looking at that. In the one, it's like, that's an incredibly selfish mm -hmm. thing to do to a child because your child is not there for you. You should have your own life. But, you know, if that was my role, and we don't get to necessarily pick our roles, mm -hmm. then I did it. And I was there. And I was externally very confident, but most of my decisions had to be approved by her, so I wasn't really very confident. I wasn't really very adult, I don't think. I think I was, I was old before my time, and I've got systematically younger <laughs> the more it's gone on, right? But I really think that's what life is. You know, that we get such a shock when it doesn't turn out the way we had mm. planned or hoped. But really, we have no control, really. We can control the little things. Right. But there's this whole other arc that's happening out there that we don't know about. Right. You know. Surrender. Surrender. I was just yeah. talking to 
Michael's son the other day about uh, choosing a word. I said, if you could just choose a word that would be your word that you could go to the grave with. God, it's kind of morbid. But anyway, I think he said love. And, and I, I chose surrender. I, I just, I think once you do kind of, for me, it's just actually physically opening my palms. You, you, uh, you can let it go. And, yeah. and as you say. Then you can focus on the stuff that's good, right? Mm -hmm. And then I think then you attract people to you who are in the same mindset. Yeah. And that takes us back to our initial focus of work when you're working with a team. Right. right? So I moved to America to collaborate, to work with like-minded people partly for, for what you're saying, so I wouldn't be alone, because right. I have no husband, I have no family now. But also, creatively, because I was sick of doing it all. I want to work with the best writer, the best director, the best production designer. That I want to work with people who are all good at what they do. Can I shoot? Yep. Can I write? Yep. Can I do my own makeup? Yes. Can I do lighting? Yes. Can I do sound? Yes. Life has prepared me for all of these things that I've not studied, but over time you learn and learn and learn. But I wanted, I wanted to work with people who were just prepared to be themselves so that I could be myself. Wow, that's very well put. No, I understand. That's, yeah. Well, watch this space. It's still a work in progress, right? But I, uh, but, so imagine, so every, since I arrived here, people have been saying, oh, you know, you've got to have your own content. You've got to get up on YouTube. As if having an Instagram following is going to be the be all and end all. And I honestly don't, I don't believe it is. I believe it's part of the equation. But it's like these, these stand-up shows that I do that are bringer shows, right? You have to bring a certain number of people in order to get your stage time. Right. So it's pay for play. Wow. But it's the same as Bette Midler booking out a theatre to do a concert. Nobody's going to back that concert. The theatre is not going to give her that theatre or, or allow her to rent that theatre without the guarantee that she yeah. has an audience to bring along. Yes. Okay? Yeah. Um, but... but you know, she doesn't have to do her own sound or lighting. <laughs> Not that I'm comparing myself to the great Miss Amber. <laughs> so, do you write? I don't write. I don't write. I'm, um, I consider myself to be a very good editor. Um, and I often think that that's something that, had I not done the film business that I might have gone into book editing. Um, I really like working with authors and writers and I, I have a good eye and um, so that's something that when I sit down with a screenwriter I say first off you should know I don't write, I have no uh, dreams, ideas about writing but I think I can work really well with you and I'm a good listener so um, I wish I were a writer. I mean, I wish that that was something in me. I mean, Michael's often said, well, you know, why don't you write in a journal? Because he writes in a journal. And it's just not me. I would so much prefer sitting here talking with you face to face or someone or learning, um, watching a documentary or a history show than, than writing down my thoughts. It just, it, is, it just isn't me. I'd love to tell you that it is, but it isn't. Oh, I know. Because <laughs> writing, you know, my first trip to New York, I went mm -hmm. to the Algonquin. I had to sit at that, mm -hmm. I had to sit yes. at that table where Dorothy Parker had, I had to. I think it's such a romantic notion of waking in the morning and, and pouring a coffee and then going, sitting down and writing page after page after page that you then right. have to edit after edit after edit, of course. But I'd love to. I'd, I think it's so romantic. But so is being a supermodel, and I'm not going <laughs> to do that You either. know, it's ironic that you bring up the Algonquin because 20, 30 years ago, 30 years ago, because I've been in the business over 30 years, that was still a, an inexpensive um, hotel to stay in. I can remember staying when I'd go for a book tour or go to meet an author. 
I would book at the Algonquin. I bet that's not the case now. I'm sure they've fixed it up and it's really hard to get a room, but I, I, that's where I would stay when I go. So yeah, all those writer goes. It's a lot of fun. So all those writer goes. So do you ever have those? I have an addiction for going to um, museums that are, that are homes, okay? So, uh -huh, so visiting uh -huh. amazing homes. Um, I, in Paris, I went to Victor Hugo's uh, room and and it was a really quiet part of the season so instead of being all these people there that tiny stairs I'm holding my hands apart about uh, two feet tiny tiny staircase and I was all on my own and I went up these timber stairs and then oh. I stood and I looked at his writing desk and I closed my eyes mm. and I just felt it I love that notion of these people who've been here before yeah, yeah. And, and what they've done. Yeah. And, you know, he had no idea what he was creating when he wrote. Posthumously, his success has been enormous. I would even say to you that, that from the Benchley and Parker, from, from the Algonquin, they had no realisation at the time mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. of, of what they, what, how they would be regarded posthumously. Yeah. And would yeah. have got a heck of a shock about it. Yeah, right? <laughs> that's true. Like, yes. let's have another martini kind of shock. <laughs> How would you like people to remember you? I mean, you're years away from leaving this world, oh. but... Um, gosh, that's a tough one, Ella. Um, I hope that I am remembered as someone who made people laugh, not you make people laugh. You, you're, you're, you, you're very, you're very funny, and I know I haven't been very humorous <laughs> in this interview, but I think I do. I, I love to, to cause fun, and I love to cause mischief, and I like to get people to question different things. I'll dress up in different outfits and pick up Michael's son just to not to shock him, but just just to do it, just to do something something different. Um, I think I'm a good listener, and I think I'm a good friend. I think I'm a loyal friend. Um, Were you always a good friend? Was um, there a time in your life when you... I have some regrets with people that I worked with, that I, I was very close friends with and then worked with, and that, to me, that is no longer a cliché. I think it's very hard to work with people that you've been close friends with or maybe become a lover with someone you've been best friends with. It's, it's, um, I've had a few of those uh, run-ins, but um, no, for the most part, and I'm a very, I, ex you know, I think I'm a respectful person and I expect that same respect. And that's, that's not always easy in, in this day and age either. Um, especially in this business as we get older, as directors get older. Um, uh, and just the whole way of making films is, is changing. Um, you know, I've said to Michael, we need to go to your storage unit and look at all these reels of film. What are we going to do with reels of film? You know, there's... I don't know. What, what, what do we do? How do we, how do we protect those? How do we save those? How do we... You know, is everything just going to be digitally boom, boom, gone? So it's, it's kind of it's Well, kind there's of a concern sad. with that as well. I mean, they do worry that the end of the world will come when, when everybody's hard drive gets too full or whether, yeah. when the technology fails us. Yeah. Which is a, a... And there's something about... Do you like going through old boxes of things and oh. being stuck for days reading letters? And... I do, I do. I, um... Yeah. I'm a, I'm a big, I'm not a hoarder, but I do have my, my keepsakes. I, um, I found the other day, and I showed to, to both Michael and John, um, Michael's son, when I was in seventh grade, and that's like 13 or something, I was yeah. dating a boy, and he made me um, memorize each uh, position of the Chicago Cubs baseball team. And he would call me on the phone, 
and in the evening, that's, you know, in the days when you talk, talk, talk about nothing. I don't know what, what, know. what you could spend and two hours talking to a boy, talking boyfriend. about, I'm, yeah. I'm making a sandwich now, I'm just lying here. I found, but I, I had a cheat sheet. So I had first base, Ernie Banks, second base, Glenn Beckert, and it was always in my jean pocket. So he would, um, he'd, he'd quiz me on the phone. And one weekend, we were making out on my friend's parent, on, on a sofa at someone's house, and he found the cheat sheet in my back pocket, and he broke up with me. He was so upset that I had, <laughs> but, but the funny thing is, I still know all those positions today by heart all the positions of those Cubs players, so. <laughs> that is so funny. I love yeah. that. I love that. I've got this image in my mind of him putting his hand in your back know, pocket, right, and going, what's this, and the fear in your heart. Oh. <laughs> God, no, I'm busted. But instead of saying you're busted, that's, boy, in those days, to break up, oh, That boy. was big. That was big. That yeah. was a moment, too. You know, I'm still in touch with my first boyfriend. We were together for three years from 14 to 17. Oh. And his parents sent him overseas to finish school to break us up. <gasps> Where? How far overseas? To Colorado, oddly enough. Yeah. Is he there now? No, Does no, he no. Be... He's back in Australia. But we, I just reached out to a mutual friend because um, I think that's another thing mm. with age. You just reach out to people randomly and just say, you know, how, how, how are you? How's it going? You know, and, and to hear how many marriages they've had, how many children they've had, the, the deaths in the family, yeah. the, the unexpected deaths, deaths of children. And, you know, it's, uh, I, think, um, I, I think it's important to, to check back with ourselves as well because it's so, we can paint the past in such a rosy, rosy colours, right? Right. And I think by checking back, with some of those people, it's a good thing. Yeah. Because you don't stay friends with everybody forever. You, you know, I mean, I'm not friends with everybody on my Facebook page, which may surprise you, right? <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a Facebook page, I, but I have been good about keeping in touch with those friends from early years. I mean, the nostalgia is a big, it's a, that's a big thing yeah, for me. Yeah, and the shared experience. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I once interviewed, now I'm, I'm having, um, I can't remember her name. I can see the cover of her book. She's an Adelaide writer, and she had written about a group of women who get together after 30 years. They'd gone to school together, and then they have a reunion after 30 years. And it's non-fiction. It's, no, it's, it's fiction. fiction. Ah, mm -hmm. And she was wonderful. And I got her on my radio program, Passionate People in Australia. And we had talk back off the notion of this book. And the women that called in and said, and men, but I remember this one woman particularly, and she said, you know, I went to kindergarten with this friend, and in sixth class she moved to the UK, but we kept in touch, and when she got breast cancer, I flew mm. over there and I looked after her. <gasps> that's a and beautiful that's, story. It's yeah. a beautiful story, <clears throat> but that's, that is what it is. You know, those people that we've known for such a long time, maybe even not particularly well, but there's like a something that happens when you have an experience at the same age with people maybe, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. just, you know stuff. And so you, you're, you're mates, you're friends, you know, which is, is a beautiful thing. Yeah. But I had to make a list of, of people to keep in touch with on a regular basis because otherwise I would just lose the plot. Oh, well, good, people. whatever it takes. Yeah, if you right. have to remind, yeah. You've got to do a reminder, it. yeah. But I remember when I moved here, um, after about a month or so, I wrote to the eight people that I considered to be the most important people in my life. Mm. And I wrote them an email telling them everything that had happened. And two people replied. Mm. And one of them said, I'll get to this when I have more time. <gasps> oh. And the other one said, thanks for the novella. No. Serious. Wow. Seriously. And I really reassessed. And I don't mind admitting. No, no, you know, no, no. And, and the ones that didn't reply immediately, we're still great mates, you know. It was for, for all kinds of reasons. And I think with people with me, they just think that I'm telling them. I don't know. I don't think they realise. 
what has brought me closer with my friends since I've been here is being vulnerable enough to let them know that I really need their support. Mm -hmm. And I think mm -hmm. that that's enhanced those friendships. But that's not easy. It's a very mature way of, of behaving, though. I, I mean, I, I respect that, that, you know, not a lot of people feel comfortable doing that. And so how great that you can say, this is what I really need. This is when I need well, you for now. And don't you think we do that with our one person? We do that mm. with our, our partner. And we, and it's kind of like a little shell. It's a little cave. And then we don't do it so much with other people. But I think for friendships to work, people need to know that particularly strong women like us, women like us who are capable, people need to know that we don't always get it right. Right. Because right. it gives them permission to not get it right either. Yeah. It makes me sound very manipulative in the front. No, no, no. But I, I, no. I, I just think it opens up, it opens up huge doors of then, because then you're with people who are willing to fail, who are prepared to make mistakes, who are prepared to admit that they make mistakes, and isn't that a better life? Right. And a right. better friend, yeah? Yeah. I mean, movies have been written about this. I want to go and write one right now, but I'm <laughs> not a writer. <laughs> now, you have made reference uh, several times in the past 30 minutes about your husband, Michael, mm -hmm. and, um, so your husband, Michael, is director Michael Apted. Yes. And uh, he too has a, a very successful career, independent of yours. Oh, I'd say so. I'd say so. <laughs> yes. Yeah. This I was the voice of, um, you know, his series Seven Up. Yes. I was the promo voice for that on cable in Australia. No. I was. I wow. Yes. Wow. So I got to, I got <clears throat> to see I got to see all of those shows anyway, but I got to see them, particularly those snapshots that they bring out when they're promoing something of, um, you know, this is what they were doing then, this is what they're doing right. now, what does it all mean? So right. much fun, so much fun. So you've seen most of them, yes, all of them. Yes, I have. Seven, 14, 21, 28, yes, yes. I think That's the last one I did was 49. There's been 56. Right. Wow, okay. Because they're my... I'm 60, and they're 60, so in another three years, they'll be the next one. But yes, okay. 56 up was the last one. So, yeah, I think he's just as excited to do the next the next interview with all of them, you know, well, in three years. Well, and isn't that, that's funny, isn't that just what we were talking about? These are people that we have seen since they were seven. Right, right. So we're looking for points of resonance. We're looking for, oh, wow, that's like me, or, oh, what a shame that happened to them, or I never would have seen that. Right, you know? right. That's, that's, in effect, that is what television and film does, but television more particularly, doesn't it? It, it, it allows us to be a part of somebody else's life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which can be good and can be bad. For them, I think it, it in their case, it's there have been times when they've really shunned the publicity and not wanted Michael, you know, nosing into their lives, and then other times when they when they feel that they want to share. Mm -hmm. So it's boy signing on for something like that when you're seven. That's that's a big commitment. Yeah, yeah. But we were talking about friendships, and I think. What's interesting also with the 7-Up group is that a couple of them have remained close friends. Not all of them, you know, it's not like we get together once a month and have our poker or anything, because they're, they're all so very different. But a couple of them have mm -hmm. over the years, and I think it's nice to see. It's nice when I've been able to, over Michael's shoulder, mm -hmm. see that and witness that. Well, I think that's what we want. I, that it, That's intimacy. <clears throat> yeah. You know, it's not a physical intimacy, but an emotional intimacy that connects us with other people that is so important. You know, without, that's the bedrock. Without that. Right. What, what, we're just bank balances. 
And, and how many wealthy people do you know for whom all the money in the world no. yeah. doesn't kick it, right? That emotional intimacy thing, well, that's, that's more than an hour interview. We can talk about, I can, I, 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 I'm very concerned about that. I mean, we, just getting into computers and r robots and, you know, how this is all really going to change. I mean, when we're not even going to have to have an, an actual partner to have physical sex. I, I mean, <laughs> that's... Really? Tell that's me, where do I get one of those? <laughs> I, I did a sketch on Conan a couple of weeks ago <laughs> called Eterna Kitty 2.0, and it's about this very thing. Um, I, I'm going to send you a link to it. Okay, because good. It, it, um, it's about, um, <clears throat> um, you know, ladies, um, uh, so, you, you know, you don't want a partner, partner, but, you know, here's a cat that's been trained that does all of these household things for you. Jose Arroyo wrote it. It's hysterical. And it has this cat with a screwdriver taped around its paw, <laughs> screwing something in, saying, oh, look, it does chores for you. <laughs> and, then, and then it's like, but, but what about the sex side of it? And then it, it, there's this fabulous, fabulous guy, Carson Nicely, and, and he is naked except for some cat accoutrements. So think in terms of he's got the little cat ears, he's got the cat tail, and he's wearing some kind of cat jock strap thing. <laughs> And, uh, and he, of course, provides the necessary <laughs> I see. physical intimacy. It's, it's, very, it's very hard for me to describe on tape, but it's very, very funny. And oh, would, good. It's just what you're oh, talking good. about. Yeah. Oh, good. Well, I, I, but it is ultimately, it's up to us to realise that it is artificial intelligence. And, and maybe that opens up a whole other dialogue as well about when we're educating our children how much we have to make sure that we have to teach them about intimacy and vulnerability and sharing and friendship and tick those boxes rather than just let them happen. Right, right. Hope Wouldn't that be nice? Nurses, Wouldn't right? that be nice? Imagine if that was a class in school. <laughs> yeah, but it isn't. No. And I don't know where it is or what country it is or that would be an interesting thing to, to find out, and you maybe know the answer, of, of what society or what culture is most comfortable with intimacies, with sharing. With, I mean, I, I don't know. Is it Scandinavian countries? Is it South American? I know it isn't here. I yeah. think we're pretty... I wouldn't know. I think when you look at the countries where traditionally family has been very important and that notion of it takes a village. So mm -hmm. I'm thinking of the European model, and I might just be nostalgic of where Nonna and Papa live with mum mm -hmm. and dad mm -hmm. and the children. So mm -hmm. they're being raised in a village, and the neighbours live very close by, so everyone knows everybody else. I right. think it's a good thing. Right. Um, also, Asian cultures. Or African cultures. African cultures. Yes. I, but I think that also comes down to respect for our elders and understanding the place that they have at the table, mm -hmm. that with the wrinkles comes the wisdom. Right. Like, don't just push them out the door. Right. I'm very keen on making sure, not that I can do anything about it because I'm not a very corporate person, but making sure that corporations employ older people with experience at the same time as employing these crack guns with great minds who are building these startups so that they've got a mature sensibility about them that flows through the product. Wisdom. I, Wisdom. I mean, yeah, ex I, I, absolutely. That's a great idea, and that is you can't, you can't be 21 and have the wisdom that a well, think 60, 70, 80-year-old. Yeah. They don't, and they, they're forced to think that they have to know yeah. everything. Yeah. And that's not fair either. And every generation heaps a load of dirt on the generation that came before, right? They've got no idea what they're doing. They're, they're selfish. And I'm sure people in the 40s said the same thing mm -hmm. about people in the 20s. Look at the way they're dressed. Oh, the young people of today, they've got no idea. You know, their hair, their hair is short. Oh, my goodness. And look at us here. We're doing, oh, look, they've got green hair. Right. You know, they've got right. tattoos. They've got piercings. Like, oh, heaven forbid the end of the earth is nigh. We've always we've always done that, and I I don't think there's I think that's humanity. I don't think that there's yeah. a, there's a solution.
I mean, somebody somebody wrote recently that the solution to this whole political d debacle in the United States at the moment um, with with the Republicans and the Democrats and is Hillary or Bernie or, and Trump and so on. I mean, I don't want to get too deeply into it, but that as a society, it's forcing us to to acknowledge that there are parts of a society that that think all of these horrible things and have been horribly let down by the system mm -hmm. and this is the way that they are acting up but what are we going to do like are we are we so much individuals now that we can't contribute to the fabric mm -hmm. it's a big question no no we it, might it not is. answer it the next <laughs> <time>. <laughs> i think that community uh certainly is something that that has been lost. Uh, I mean, you were saying in each generation, we throw things back on the, the generation before, but I, I just think this whole sense of community and what you were speaking uh, about earlier about the village is, is really gone. And um, I think you found some aspects of it in church and we can tear apart the church. Not that I'm a religious person, I am a spiritual person, but at least the church served for me growing up as a place where you came as a community. You walked, you met the same people, you had coffee, those were your parents' friends. It was just, it was different, you know. Um, but sport does that. You know, bringing people together to play on a team. And yeah. then, you know, for parents with children particularly, then you get to meet the parents. other parents of children right. and so right. on. You know, and, and I can't go and hop hover around a soccer field because they'll think that I'm some kind of pedophile. You know, <laughs> the single woman misses out on on that kind of village connection. Yes. And yeah. so you create your own. Yeah. I, I've created this thing called Ziplocks of Love and people come to my home every couple of months and and we package things for the homeless in Ziploc bags, you know, tissues, water, socks, tampons, body wash, right? Everybody donates 10 things and then takes 10 bags away. That's the, the business model. But I did that really selfishly because I needed to have a community outside of any potential work that I might get. Right, you know? right. And you don't play bridge or? No, no I'm just kidding. This is funny. <laughs> but I felt, I felt momentarily guilty then. I thought, I'm going to let her down now. No, no I, I don't play bridge. I have an addiction for sudo Sudoku. Oh. Okay, so, yeah. so playing computer games all by myself and then lamenting a lack of community. Yes, I'm totally 21st century in that regard. You know, and I, but it's important. Yeah. You, and, and I think as women, one of, the, one of the biggest mistakes that I see people make is that they get a boyfriend or a husband or a partner and they're gone. Mm -hmm. You're gone, you're dropped, right? Because they're mixing with other couples then. Yeah. And there isn't room for the sixth, the seventh person at the table. Not always, yeah. but just to create a meme over that, absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, and I think, it, it's important for us to maintain all of those friendships of, you know, your A, your B, your C, your D level friends. Right. You know, people that you might catch up with once every five years, people that you might see every 12 months, but you know exactly what you're thinking, people that you might go to a movie once every 12 months, and then the people that you text on the way home from something and say, guess what ha just happened? Right, you know? right. Um, yeah. But I think women need to know the extraordinary holes they leave in other women's lives when they don't balance that out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have a partner now, but I didn't have children, and you're absolutely right. My women friends who have children, that, those children are everything to them. And I, I can recall times of, of being so jealous, not that I didn't have children, but I wanted my girl, wanted my girl to go on a road trip with, or, just to go over and can I stay over and cry on your bed? Can we just lie like we used to and just cry? That's that's a tough one. It that's is. really because you you want them to have that commitment to their children. Yes. Yeah. But as soon as we hear and it's the same theme, Paige, as soon as we throw ourselves one hundred percent into one thing, when that landscape changes, 
we will be hurt. Yeah. Whether it's joining a movie community for six weeks or, or eight months and then it's all over, whether it's getting married, having children, then they leave home. Right. All of right. those things. It's the changing nature, isn't it? I mean, yeah. it just is. It's just no, life. Absolutely. And that's why the fact that you actually built a community, you said, this is important for me, selfishly, and then, of course, it's doing something far better and, and, and greater. But I, I, I think that's something that you're going to inspire me to do. I think oh, cool. it's important. Yeah. Oh, good. We've got our next meeting in May. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So what's next for you? Are you working on something at the moment? We are. We're working, Michael and I have... Um, optioned a book and we have a screenplay it's a book called euphoria and it's set in Papua new guinea and it's fiction but it's loosely based on margaret mead who was the american anthropologist and there are three wonderful roles it's a very tragic triangle love story but set in exotic Papua new guinea which i've never been to um michael's actually uh no he hasn't been there but um so we're trying to, we're getting out to actors now and we've got financiers, we have financing, so we just have to put the team together and that's always the part that, that I enjoy. So, um, so that's what we're gonna be doing. And I'm still just doing my thrift shopping. I love to, uh, I love to go to thrift stores. So it gives me ideas, it gives me ideas. I put little things together, my own little art art things together. Oh, you're wonderful. <laughs> Do you know Carlos Barbosa? No. Who's that? Production designer uh, from Magic City. And uh, he's just heading off to New Mexico at the moment uh, to work on Soderbergh's Godless for Netflix. Okay. Yes. And, um, and I'm going to be interviewing him as well. He, he does, and I said to him, I, I, I can't wait to hear your production design put into descriptors because I put three objects together and I lose my car keys. But people like you and he mm. put three objects together and it's art. Yeah, yeah. I well, I'm not, I, I'm not, I don't know that I'm on par with him, but that, that is something that I, that I really, I found a really interesting item in the trash. So I, I remember calling Michael on the phone and telling him and he, he said, don't tell anybody that. <laughs> Don't you dare tell anyone. But that's where I think we're headed, Ella. I think that fashion, we've done everything. Music, we've done everything. And I think it's all going to be recycled and repurposed. I, 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 it, it, I do. So um, I, I think that's going to be an interesting time for artists and creators and inventors and, and inspirational um, people, I, th I think they're going to find things that, that exist or have been tossed. And I, I just found a flower turner that, that uh, my mom used to have that would whatever, sift, sift the flower, sift flower the sifter. Flower. So it's, yeah, I yeah, don't yeah, even yeah. think you use that object anymore, but how, how cool of an object. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, I just, so anyway, yeah. Have you seen the baskets on a handle that you put soap in and you shake that in the water to create dishwashing. Oh, no. Well, Interesting. I, I grew up with things like that, and I agree with you. Vinyl, the re-emergence of vinyl yeah. is a metaphor for our exactly. lives. Exactly. You know, repurposing, recycling, because we're over this cheap stuff that we throw out, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's, my my home obviously is cobbled together since I moved here, and I frequently stop the Prius and, and on the roadside and go, oh, "Are they really <laughs> throwing that out?" <laughs> I think I might just sneak that under the cover of darkness, but I don't even do that now, you know. Um, and I'm hooked on Hughes Estate Sales. They've got a sixty percent off sale today in downtown LA. Oh, yeah. I'm not going to. I'm on it, the west but. side. It's hard for me to cross over to go downtown, but. Uh, but there's enough good trash down here in Venice. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you so much for yeah. being part of this. This is, this is wonderful. Really enjoyed talking to you and all well, the thank best you. with Euphoria. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to Take Fountain with Ella James. For more, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter.
you can subscribe to the podcast at Audio Boom, Stitcher, iTunes, or your favorite podcasting app. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. From Audio Boom comes Covert, a new podcast that delves into the murky world of spies, soldiers, and top secret military operations. I'm Jamie Rennell, and together we'll discover the real stories of history's greatest classified missions, told by the operatives, soldiers, and journalists who experienced it firsthand. Follow Covert on Spotify, or subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows.